Now in January, the British Army uh, unveiled a recruitment campaign to attract young people, especially millennials, into the military. You may have seen this, these, these campaigns they were doing. They were running large billboard ads, right? And these billboard ads had some very interesting slogans on them. Some of them said, snowflakes, your army needs you and your compassion. Another one said, selfie addicts, your army needs you and your confidence. <laughs> Phone zombies, the army needs you and your focus. I love looking at adverts um, because I'm fascinated about what businesses believe is the best way to attract people. And also, if you, if you, I don't really flick through adverts. I like watching them even if they come on TV because they reveal that about what business believe human nature is like. Uh, it tells us what are human beings like. And, um, and if you've watched many adverts, a key feature of adverts is that they only tell us the good bits. That's what makes a good advert, right? They only just want to tell you what is good about the product or service they are selling. And uh, the MOD adverts, when you look at it, it uh, you know, it's trying to inspire confidence, trying to tell you the army is a place where you can channel your focus, you, you, you can use all that compassion that you're wasting away, you can use it uh, for the good of the country. What the MOD adverts don't tell you is they've left out that the army is actually a very dangerous place to work in. You could lose your life being in the army. And of course, being in the army, uh, you know, they don't tell you that, you know, there are conscience issues. They, they, you may have to fight a war you don't agree with and that sort of thing. You know, I was thinking about this and I wondered to myself, I wonder if Jesus was running a series of billboard ads, what words would be there? If it was running one, what words from the scriptures do we think would be on that billboard ad? I think today's passage, Mark 10, verse 28 to 31, is a strong contender, actually, for being there because it wonderfully summarizes uh, what it means to follow Jesus. And what, is, what strikes me about these words is that just like the, um, the, the army advert, it's trying to tell you why it's good for you to be a follower of Jesus, right? It tells you why it's good for you. But unlike worldly adverts, Jesus is not trying to con you. Uh, he's not trying to, if you like, live out the cost. No. In front of us, in verse 28 to 31, Jesus just gives you the full information of what it's like. There are benefits and there are costs. And he's asking you to wear the question, is following Jesus worth it? That's the question that Jesus is really posing to you here. And he's hoping you give a clear answer that it is worth it. And that's a question I just want to ask you this, um, uh, this evening uh, for you to consider for yourself. Is following Jesus worth it? And if the answer is yes, how then does it impact the way you live in practice? So turn with me to Mark 10, verse 28 to verse 31. And Jesus here reveals three truths uh, to help us answer that question about what it means to follow him and whether it's worth it or not. The first truth we learn here is that following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus will cost you. Uh, you remember this morning that Jesus has just assured the disciples in verse 27 that life with God does not depend on human initiative. 
It depends on God and God alone. Look at Mark, Mark, just verse 27 there said this. We looked at this this morning. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And I said that we should read verse 27 as Jesus himself saying, With man it is impossible, but not with me. Because Jesus is God. All things are possible with me. And they are not just possible. Salvation is now available in Jesus. Right? It depends on Jesus alone. And yet, even though salvation is free in Jesus, it costs us everything. As Peter immediately testifies to Jesus in verse 28. Let's look at verse 28 there. Listen to what Peter says. He's heard that all things are possible. He's heard salvation is free. But listen to what Peter says. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything. It's cost us everything. And we have followed you. Peter is reminding Jesus that, look, yes, salvation is free. But look, I have left my, my, my wife in Judea. She has not come with me. My fishing nets are back there in Capernaum. I left my wife in Capernaum. Right? My fishing nets are back there in Capernaum. My children, yes, yes, probably is happy. His mother-in-law is back in Capernaum. Right? And in, and in verse 29, the Lord Jesus acknowledges that what Peter is saying is true. Following him has led to followers of Jesus to live behind their houses, their families, and their possession. Right? Now, we need to be clear here that when Peter says that he has left his house behind, it does not mean he has sold it off. That's quite important. He still has the title deeds to the house. He's still there as the owner, right? The nets are probably still in his house. We know all of this because Peter has passed through the house, and we know that actually later on Peter will even go fishing, um, just as he's waiting to, to see the evidence of the resurrection, right? So there will, be, there will be all of us. So he hasn't completely got rid of everything. Jesus, has, if you like, Peter has not left his wife in Capernaum. He has left his wife in Capernaum, but he has not divorced her. That's quite important. He's still married, and in the future, yes, he's left the wife behind, but in the future, Mr. and Mrs. Cephas will do mission together. We know that, don't we? Yeah? So, Peter leaving everything behind, <laughs> it doesn't mean disposing of everything. No. Peter leaving everything behind for Jesus means his house, his family, his possessions, and now at the disposal of Jesus. Jesus is now Lord and King of Peter's life. What still Peter owns and possesses still these things? Peter can still go fishing, but he can only go fishing if Jesus says so. How Peter spends his time with his wife and his children, he must run that past Jesus. Jesus, if he, Jesus is running his life now. Peter is a new slave, he's a born slave. And when he, come, when he starts speaking, when he writes his second letter, he will call himself a born slave of Jesus. This is the cost of following Jesus. All followers of Jesus must now deny themselves. The, the, the cost of following Christ is that we lose running our lives. Our lives are now run by another, the Lord Jesus Christ. We lose the life to the right to live as we please. It's just not on the table if you're a true follower of Jesus. 
But there is no, there's another cost. The other cost, Peter is not aware of at this time. And the cost is in verse 30. Do you see it? With persecutions, he says there. With persecutions. Those who follow Jesus not only incur the cost of letting Jesus now run their lives, they also incur suffering for the name of Jesus. Suffering, hardship, and yes, even death martyrdom for following Jesus. And that is actually what happened to each of these disciples except one. But all of them actually suffered hardship in some way, even John, who wasn't, who wasn't killed, but he suffered terribly himself. We know that because Revelation is written from the island of Patmos, where he was incarcerated. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified in Greece. And James was beheaded. And the list goes on and on. And the cost of following Jesus in terms of martyrdom continued after the apostles. We remember John Chrysostom, who was exiled to the was exiled to the Taurus Mountains because he had caught out the sins of Constantinople in the fourth century. And even today, Christians are being persecuted heavily for the name of Christ. Open Doors in his world watch list released this year says 245 million professing Christians in 2019. As you sit here right now, 245 million Christians around the world, our brothers and sisters are experiencing high levels, not mild levels, high levels of persecution in 73 nations. And that is actually up from 215 in 2018. Why does following Christ cost us? You know, I ask myself this question, why don't they all just save us? I mean, just save us without the cost, right? We know salvation is free, but why does it have to cost me? Why, why has God not made it easy? Why is there a cost to me? Well, there are three reasons for this. The first reason is that it is the nature of salvation itself. It's the nature of what it means to follow Christ. Remember what I said? Following Christ means renouncing yourself, right? To follow Christ means to die to yourself so that the life of Jesus may flow within you. There is no new life without death to self. There's no new life to Christ without death to self. So it's the nature of the product, you might say. It's the nature of salvation. And that hurts, doesn't it? To die to yourself. There are many ways. You, you must say, dying to yourself might mean saying no to a particular relationship for Christ. For the rich young ruler, dying to self, they are meant giving up those riches in a practical way because Jesus commanded him to do it. Because it was hurting his soul and he couldn't do it. So this course comes in different ways, but it's built into the design of salvation. Death to self. And only by death to self, we will have life. If anyone must come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. So the first reason is that it's built into the design of salvation. Secondly, the second reason is it costs us, God allows this cost to us, is that God uses the cost, if you like, because he wields a knife of affliction to remove all the dirt of sin in our lives so we can become more and more like Jesus. Here is how one poet puts it. One of my favorite poems, he says this. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man, 
that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. Watch how God ruthlessly perfects a man he royally elects. Watch how God hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trowel shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts his beseeching hands, how God bends but never breaks when he's good he undertakes. How God uses whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. The poem is saying following Christ is a process of God humbling us, fashioning us with hammers, with hurts, with mighty blows so that he could remove every single thing that gets in the way of us becoming like Christ. He's wielding that knife of affliction to cut everything out until we look like Christ. It's painful. But that's why God allows it. Because he wants us to become more like him. But the good news in all of that is that God, as the poet says, God bends but never breaks. In short, we can say with King Solomon in Proverbs 20, verse 30, blows that, blows that wound, cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. Blows that wound, cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. Proverbs 20, verse 30. So God does this to make us more like Jesus. That's the second reason. The third reason God allows this cost in our lives is that it's because we must follow the steps that Jesus walked. And for some of you, that was probably the immediate answer you thought of. Whoa, whoa, why, why, why is it so costly to follow? Because we, must, we are followers of Jesus. Jesus endured pain and suffering for you and I. The servant is no greater than his master. We suffer for Christ because the cost of suffering shows us that we know that it's amazing. We suffer because the cost that suffering is actually us sharing Christ in full. We, don't, we share in his suffering. We don't just share in other parts. It's part of our union with Christ. If we're truly united with Christ, then of course we follow him even in death. So that's why God allows, allows us to experience this cost. The bottom line is that following Jesus always costs us. I emphasize that point because we need to remember it. Because my experience as a pastor, even for a few years, is that what I've discovered with many Christians is that many, many people become Christians because they are hoping for a comfortable, happy life. They have perhaps heard a televangelist somewhere telling them to turn to Jesus and receive all the blessings. Or perhaps they had a friend who really wanted them to become a Christian that they just emphasized happiness, other things that would come from following Jesus. They never heard the full gospel. They may have been truly converted, but they just never heard the other part. They really believed that being a Christian would mean more comfort in this life. And so when they made that profession, so they said that profession of faith, they, they said the sinner's prayer. They never really counted the cost as Jesus presents it here. And so what happened is that after a while, trouble came knocking on the door. Right? 
And once trouble entered their lives, they started thinking, well, this faith does not work. I was promised a comfortable life, but now I'm suffering. I've cried out to God to give me this. I've cried out to God to give me that. It's not working. God is not giving me what he promised. But the truth of the matter is that no one explained to them Mark 10, 28 to 31. The truth of the matter is that they didn't check, not the fine print, they just didn't check what was right in front of them. Because these truths are not hidden for us. They never read, I guess, Mark 8, verse 38, or 34 to verse 38, that he who comes after Christ must take up the cross and follow him. They didn't. And so they are now disappointed with God. And some of them wander back in the world. And the reason for that is that perhaps these people never really surrendered to Jesus. They were never perhaps really converted. Their hearts never really bowed the knee. They never understood the full cause. And therefore they didn't know why they needed Christ in the first place, except as a genie to give them what they wanted. Christ was an accessory rather than a savior. And so their faith was not really true. And the tragedy, I think, is that in my experience as a pastor, speaking to people, is that when you try sharing the gospel with these people who have heard some version of the gospel, <laughs> well, <laughs> you need a little prayer and fasting. Because I tell you one thing, it, it's very hard. Because as far as they are concerned, they have tried God and it doesn't work. But of course, the tragedy is they have never heard the gospel. They have never heard it explained to them that following Jesus is costly. God is not out to pamper you. He's not a genie for your ends. And I would encourage you that we, when we share Jesus with others, we must make this cost up front and trust God to use his spirit to convict them in the middle of what is initially beginning, initially a tough message. You may not think it's a good place to begin to talk about the cost, but God knows best, and that's what Christ has shown us in the scriptures. We must make it clear to people that following Christ is going to be, you are inviting them on a costly and painful journey. But thank God there is another side. You wouldn't just present that. You want to obviously present the second part of what Jesus has presented. And the second truth is that following Jesus is beneficial. So it is costly, but it is also beneficial. We are doing something of a cost-benefit analysis today. So following Jesus is beneficial. Following Jesus benefits us now. Because God brings us into a new family where we get everything that we have given up. Look at verse 29. And Jesus said, truly, I said to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the good news, the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Jesus is saying the cost of living everything is offset by the fact that we now join a new family of many people that brings their blessings to us. That's what Jesus means here. The mechanism for these blessings is the family of God. That's what Jesus means here. They have given up their family, so to speak. All those lists they have given up are in the context of family. 
houses and possession and family in general. They are the family. He's saying, you have left these things behind, but now you are now part of a new community of God where everyone now brings those things. Remember, they haven't sold them off, but those things that are now at the disposal of the community of God. Right? This new community. They now enjoy the blessings of being part of a new family of God. There are many blessings, of course, that God gives you apart from that, right? But the most supreme blessing, as far as Jesus is telling us here, is the family of God. The family of God. That's a supreme blessing. You give up everything and you, God gives you a family. Each person in the church, now what they have belongs to you. Because you are now in a new family of God. Now, this is very difficult for many of us living in the Western world to get our heads around, right? We live in an individualistic society. Much of our experience with church does not resemble a true family. I have spoken to many people who attend churches. Many, even at the conference, I was speaking to many people. Even in this fellowship, there are many people I've spoken to who feel lonely and isolated in churches. Many of the people I've spoken with, they tell me that they're at war within churches. So the benefits that Jesus is describing here seem far-fetched to our ears, right? But they're not. Uh, because God's plan is that his people should be one loving family and that everything we have should belong to each other. That's how we get to enjoy these blessings. And most importantly, God's design is intended that the most important relationship in your life compared to all other relationships must be the relationship you enjoy with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because this is what Jesus has modeled for us in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to verse 35. This, this, this is what's happening here. It just expands. If you turn back to Mark chapter 3 and just remind yourself what this passage we looked at in Mark. Chapter 3, verse 31 to 35. Jesus himself modeled this. Do you remember what happened? The family comes looking for Jesus, right? And then he says this in verse 31. They've come from Nazareth to look for Jesus. And he's out in Capernaum. And this is what happens in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. We only have one father in Christ the Father himself, God the Father. So in all of these passages, whether it's in Mark 10, Mark, Mark chapter 3, we never gain fathers because we only have one father. But we gain brothers, sisters, ch children and so forth in the fellowship of God. But what Jesus models for us in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 35, is that Jesus refused to go out to his mom. Why? The mom Mary who nursed him. Why? Because Jesus is teaching us that God's true family takes priority over our human families. Why am I belaboring this point here when I'm talking about the benefits of being in the kingdom? I'm belaboring this point because many who claim to follow Jesus, and I've said many times, operate on a model which is very, the usual model we see in churches. God first, family second, church third, and other relationship fourth. 
God first, family second, church third, and other relationship fourth. What has happened, as I like to say, is that many Christians have divorced God from his family. You have separated what God has put together. And as a result of doing that, you, of course, put God's church third away from God. And you insert your family in the middle. Right? You see, to some of us, as long as we have a personal relationship with Jesus... And all is okay in our human family. What goes on in church is secondary. And as a result of this belief, we only do things in church that fits in with our family schedule rather than fit our family around God's people. I would imagine that for many of you, you consider fitting your family only as a, something for pastors to do. Of course, me being a pastor, I cannot do anything by the function of my role here, if it doesn't agree with the church. So I praise God for being a pastor because God helps me to obey quickly, right? But you don't have, you don't have to be here Sunday morning. You don't have to be here Sunday evening. You don't have to be here midweek, right? I have to be here, right? So of course I fit my life around this, right? But I think you should realize that it's not just for those who are called as elders or deacons who must do that. You as a child of God must fit everything else around the community of God. That's how God has designed it. If your job conflicts at the fundamental level, there are jobs that, that, are, that, that are just difficult, right? If you find yourself, your job means you miss Sunday mornings, then of course the obvious thing is to change your job. There's no doubt about it. That's the pastoral advice, right? If you did that, now, you know, you don't have to be here all the time, but what I'm saying is for core times together, we must show that we are following Christ really by fitting our lives around his People, with the usual exception. You see, when church is full of people who believe that the church fits around their family, the benefits of this verse cannot be enjoyed. They cannot be realized among us. Because people who believe that, 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 that their family is more important than the church cannot open their homes to people. Why? Because it would disturb their family peace. The church now is interfering with family. So, so I'm not going to invite people because it's going to interfere with my family, right? It will disturb my family balance. Uh, people who live uh, as if the church is secondary to their family cannot make their possessions available to others. They just won't. They can't. Because they're making their position available to, to, to the church, to the federal of God's kingdom, as we talked about this morning, or, or just to give somebody who's hurting, it's going to mean less for their human family. And so they have decided, no, 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 prudence in this case means I gotta look after my own, right? My own, than their own in Christ. Same thing with time, isn't it? People are like this, cannot. If they have spare time, the first thing they ask is, how does this help the family? Now, there are practical issues about how do we look after, on our responsibility to our human families and how do we live in God's design, and, and probably that's the same for another time. But what I would say is that our endeavor, particularly when it comes to raising children, uh, when it comes to, do, raising our, to loving our wives and caring for them, all those sorts of things, we should endeavor to be fully committed to the church and see that it's the church's responsibility to... Help raise your children as well as yours. We share that responsibility. 
It's a change of responsibility to help you care for your wife. We share that responsibility with you because God has placed you in our family. Just as my mom care, sees it as a responsibility to ensure that I'm loving Eunice, she does, right? So if I'm not behaving, she'll call me up. She, she knows that. She's going to have a child with my mother-in-law, right? She, she shares that responsibility with me, even as it is my responsibility. In the same way, in the family of God, we share our responsibilities with one another. Whether it's raising our children, raising, um, uh, uh, loving our wives and so forth. Whatever burdens you have, they are shared. And it's only in a community that believes that truth that the benefits of what Jesus talks about in verse 29, verse 29 to verse 30 can be lived out, right? Because what Jesus is calling us here is to, to live differently. He calls us to live differently. It's God's family first, right? Together, God and his family, and the human family second, and other relationship third. And you know what? This is what the disciples have done. And therefore, they have enjoyed the staggering blessings. They're beginning to enjoy the staggering blessings. And we know in Acts 2, they get to enjoy those blessings. The point is that true followers of Jesus enjoy the benefits of being a true family of God because they live as Jesus himself lived. And I think this issue is about salvation, really. If you're truly converted, you will belong to a true family of God. And therefore, you will make everything available. If you're not truly converted, of course you won't make everything available because your heart still belongs to this world. And the disciples were true converts. So Acts 2 happened. And they were able to share and share. And even around today, we do see that. Now, of course, we, we, we are in imperfect churches and so forth. But I think if you're a true believer, you should want to make this a reality. We should pray. This is, look, there are some, the prosperity gospel has got many things wrong, right? That's important. We don't have to fall down that trap. What we need to do is to pray the benefits of verse 29 to 30. We should pray that we have these things and enjoy them in the redemptive community by belonging genuinely to the people of God. There's nothing wrong with you praying that you should see in this church these blessings where we what I own is yours. That my car literally is yours. You know, if Brother Rob's car is broken down, he should be confident to know to call me up and say, you know, Shola, you know, my car is broken down. I need to get to work tomorrow. Can I, is it okay if I just use it for a week? It's that sort of thing to start off with. That should be happening. If my brother is wondering, if I call him, I'm going to inconvenience him, blah, blah. My brother, trust me, my brother when he's broke, my human brother when he's broke in Overhampton, he's going to listen to his sermon, he listens to his sermons all the time. <laughs> he always calls me out, <coughs> right? And so we are talking about the reality of those relationships, right? This is what we should have, something deeper than that, uh, among ourselves as people in Christ. You know, I want you to imagine me what it would be like for a church if all its members truly lived as a true family of God. You know, it would be a community where materials are shared. No one would lack anything. Where when one person suffers, we all suffer with them. When one rejoices, we all rejoice with them. When people, you know, experience love, we experience it with them. 
You know, when somebody, you know, goes for an interview, gets a job, we all rejoice in that because we've been weeping and praying with them for that. You know, we'd be a place where people prioritize taking the Lord's Supper. You know, they, they enjoy breaking the bread. We are praying together. We are studying God's word together. It's a place where drug addicts and gang members will find Jesus. And I know that sounds a lot like Mark 10, 28, doesn't it? Verse 31, what Jesus is talking about. And of course it sounds a lot like the church in Acts. And that's what we should be praying to become. Following Jesus is beneficial. But the benefits come by genuinely belonging to the family of God and living as a family. So let's pray for that. Here's the final point in this passage. So following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is beneficial. And the final point is that following Jesus is profitable. The benefits outweigh the costs, not just in this life, not simply by being part of a new family now in this world, but being in Jesus forever is superior because of the benefits that lie beyond the grave. We have the eternal blessing that awaits us in the new kingdom. And they are just too great for us to imagine. Look at how Jesus puts them in verse 30. And in the age to come, eternal life. In the age to come, in the new world, in the new heavens, new earth, eternal life. Now, as I said this morning, we have entered already eternal life. Because we are in the kingdom. But it's just beginning. It is a now and not yet reality. Beloved, we have not even begun to sense what it means to belong to Jesus. What will it be like to live with God? To see the face of God every day. To bask in his glory. To experience beams and beams of light and grace from him. To forever feed of his wisdom and his love. To live in a perfect... Where it is beyond imagining. Those are the blessings, beloved. Those are the blessings. But consider as well what you will not experience as a result of Christ. You will not be lost forever. You will not suffer hell. You will not experience terrible darkness that you deserve for your sin. You will not suffer eternal torment at the hands of God. You miss out all of that. And on the other side, there is God and God and God and God for eternity. Glory awaits us. And just in case you are in doubt, Jesus makes that clear in verse 31. Look at verse 31. And many who are first will be last. And the last first. Jesus is saying the first in this world will be last. Those that live for this world. Who have amassed benefits. The ones we talked about this morning. Those who live for this reality of this present age will be last. They will be lost forever in hell. But those of us who are last, who bear the cost of following Christ, who have been brought into a true family of God, well, we'll be first. Those who give up everything gain heaven. Those who give up earth gain heaven. And you know, I, I just thought about these words of Jesus here. They must have been so comforting to the readers of Mark. 
in, in Rome, who Mark wrote this to. Imagine they were reading these words for the first time in Rome. Many of them had been shunned by their families. Many of them were hiding, right? Many of them they were being hunted by society. They were, Nero was putting them to wild dogs. He was throwing them in circuses. They were being beheaded. It was terrible. They were being set up as light torches for Christ. And I would imagine there would have been pressures for some of them to wobble in their walk. I mean, I wobble <laughs> over a very small thing. They would have wobbled, I think, humanly speaking. They would have started wondering, is Jesus still worth it? When is the rescue going to come? When is the second coming? Why is Jesus not coming? I mean, these things are happening now. They would have asked, is Jesus still worth it? Even as they were being marched, some of them, to, the, to their graves. But when they read these words of Mark, any doubts disappeared. Jesus is worth it. Yes, following him is costly. But look at the benefits of our new family, they would have said. Yes, suffering persecution is, we're suffering terrible persecution. We are last of the bottom. We are last in our society. We are looked down upon. No one cares about us, right? The media has no time for us, they would have said. We're just sailing along always, isolated. But they looked at these words and said, Jesus has promised glory in the age to come. Far surpassing all the costs they're experiencing. And they would have been comforted by that. And I think we should be encouraged that following Jesus is profitable. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus this evening, if you're truly trusting in him, be encouraged. I don't know, I do not know all the struggles you are currently facing right now. I don't know. Uh, maybe you are currently battling against temptation in your life, and, uh, and battling temptation means that you have had to make drastic changes in your life that are painful. You're just like, that place tempts me, I'm not going to go there. Or that person is not good for me, therefore they just can't be my friend. And that, that relationship has been severed as a result. Painful. And maybe you have some difficult situation in your home or at work with your friends and you're trying to serve God faithfully, but it is just painful. Or maybe it's another personal circumstances, maybe it's just your physical or mental health is not getting better. And you know there are moments when you wonder, what is God up to? We are praying, but is God going to move? Or maybe you're trying to confront sin in the life of someone very close to you that you love. You see that their walk with Jesus is not as it should be. And you're trying very hard, but as you try very hard, it's costing you. It's costing you that relationship. It's causing strain, perhaps, in your home. And there are many situations where following Jesus is costing you in different ways. And greatly. Well, this passage is saying, keep following Jesus. Because it is profitable in the end. If you are in Jesus, you have a wonderful God who never leaves you nor forsakes you. So keep looking to you, to him, in your difficult circumstances. Jesus has already secured eternal life for you. And soon we shall enter the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So we press on, don't we? In face of difficult circumstances. Wounded in this world. Yes, definitely. And we gladly, gladly, joyfully carry those wounds for Christ. Because we know it means we are sharing in him. Wounded, yes. Suffering loss, yes. 
But like Gideon and these uh, 300 men, we are tired, yes, but still pursuing. And may the Lord help us to keep looking to Jesus because he is worth it. Amen.